Well, hello there. Welcome to my podcast, Princess and the Pea Survivor Edition, where we talk about healing from adversity and trauma, life's sometimes seemingly impossible tests, and how these ongoing tests impact our relationships with others, as well as the one we have with ourselves. Thanks for being here. My name is Faith Christine Bergevin. You can call me Faith. Are you resilient? How do you feel when someone tells you that you are? Glad? Proud? Or maybe, could it be a little annoyed? Perhaps the comment reminds you of the trials you've been through alone and how you would have preferred to have someone there on the path with you. Listen now to hear the dark underbelly of this overused term called resilience. You may think twice before using it again. Resilience. Really? Breaking down the myth of this buzzword. Oh, she is so resilient. How do you feel when you hear this comment? Does it make you feel better knowing someone is resilient? that they have the inner resources this word implies, meaning she does not have to ask for help because see, she is so, you know, resilient. And what if someone is not? If the person is in recovery and barely holding on, are they not resilient? What are they missing? Does it bring up thoughts that perhaps it's their own fault? Perhaps they haven't developed enough skills, enough fortitude, or are weak-willed and need to figure something out. But what if this person is in recovery from something terrible? Is she really not resilient? Maybe her just being here is the real mark of her resilience. I wonder about times when someone tells you you're resilient and the response you have. Do you feel supported or somehow judged and maybe relieved? Is there some standard that comes to mind and leaves you feeling something is not quite right? Catchphrase du jour. Resilience is a catchword in the world of recovery from adverse experiences or a difficult childhood. It's this idea that we have inner resources that help us if we can access them. This is true on many levels. But sometimes the word faces, as many many words do, such as the word trauma, a fallout from overuse, and we lose the meaning of it. If we say everything is trauma, then what is real trauma? If we say we are all resilient, what does that even mean? Those who are not able to or have trouble with accessing their internal resource of resilience can feel like they are missing something important in their character. They might feel broken somehow and fall into depression or anxiety and panic attacks and then feel like a failure and head into a downward spiral of shame. To where that leads, we don't want to imagine. Let's stop that if we can, shall we? A definition. The American Psychological Association, the APA, defines resilience as such, and I quote, Resilience 
is the process and outcome of successfully adapting to difficult or challenging life experiences, especially through mental, emotional, and behavioral flexibility and adjustment to external and internal demands. A number of factors contribute to how well people adapt to adversities, predominantly among them. One, the ways in which individuals view and engage with the world. Two, the availability and quality of social resources. Three, specific coping strategies. Psychological research demonstrates that the resources and skills associated with more positive adaptation i.e. greater resilience, can be cultivated and practiced. That's the end of the APA definition of resilience. This all seems rather bland, yet somehow doable, doesn't it? After all, this is the APA. They should know. One word catches me, though. Adapting. As in someone has to adapt to the circumstances they have found themselves in. But what lies underneath every single one of the bullet points that influences how a person adapts is another story altogether. It is a far deeper one that people who have not had serious adversity may not be able to understand and can easily dismiss. And those who have had significant struggle may just throw their hands up in despair, yet again feeling left out and misunderstood all because they are not resilient enough. Let's break down that APA definition, shall we? The first point, quote, the ways in which individuals view and engage with the world, end quote. How do we view the world? Let's start with that. How we view the world is dependent on a number of factors. How we were raised, how our parents instilled values, if they instilled values, how our friends related to us, how we looked, how people looked at us, what our talents were, if anyone told us we had talents, what our weaknesses were, if we were neurodivergent, how we were helped or not with that neurodivergence, if we were repeatedly criticized, if our parents listened, if our teachers cared and respected us, if we were slapped on our hands by the nuns and told to shut up, if we were allowed to talk, if we are now allowed to talk or muted in our environments, what is happening now? Can we pay our bills? Do we have children? Are our children struggling? Are we in a violent community or city? Do we have partners to help? Do we have access to clean water and food? Do we have a regular job with benefits or are we just scraping by? These few examples show how we view the world is not so simple. There are many social, economic, community, and biological factors involved, many as a result of good or bad fortune. Clearly, a lot has to do with our relationships with others and level of responsibilities, as well as the influence of both past and present environments. Enter Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And here for our listeners who don't have the essay in front of us, I have Maslow's Pyramid. It's a hierarchy of needs. You can easily Google it or come back to my Substack page and look it up because the graphic is there. Uh, but I'll describe it very quickly so that uh, we can continue onwards. So it's divided, like I said, in a pyramid. The base of the pyramid has two levels of basic needs. The first one is physiological needs, such as food, water, warmth, and rest. 
The second layer on top going up the pyramid is safety needs, security, and safety. The third layer up are, begins our psychological needs, belongingness, and love needs, such as intimate relationships and friends. The layer up from that one, so the fourth one, is esteem needs, prestige, and feelings of accomplishment. And the top of the pyramid, so like the little peak, I guess we would call it, our self-fulfillment needs. And these are our self-actualization needs. So achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. This is Maslow's concept of the hierarchy of needs. So this pyramid shows what people need as a foundation. We can't even talk about resilience until we talk about basic needs. People need the basics, food, water, warmth, rest, and to feel safe and secure. This is foundational. So when someone is told they need to cultivate their inner resilience, can they really find it when they are struggling with basic needs? I don't think so. If someone is viewing the world from a position of lack, of being able to meet basic needs, can we guess how they will engage with the world? Can they even engage with the world in a productive way? The fact is, how we view the world influences how we engage with the world. If someone feels like they have no voice, no community, no support, no help, it can be difficult to engage with the world in a way that encourages others to step up and help. It is only after someone has met their basic needs that they can even then look for belonging and love. When you're struggling to survive, there is little someone can do to influence others since their entire focus, physical, emotional, and mental, is focused and founded on survival. And forget about esteem needs and self-actualization as these self-fulfillment needs cannot even be seen at this level and stage of the hierarchy pyramid. In fact, there's a certain social psychology factor that influences how much we can influence other people. And this brings us to the APA's second point. Two, the availability and quality of social resources. When a person is struggling to secure the basics, how available are they to nurture relationships? How much quality can they have when they are scrabbling? As, Ma as Maslow's theory shows us, belonging can only come after survival needs have been met. Now, let's address the social psychology bias that exists for everyone. I don't often use absolutes, but this one is so obvious it is baked into our social fabric. It's called bask in reflected glory. Does this sound familiar? Here's an example. Imagine you are at an event where there's a keynote speaker. This person is engaging and funny. After the talk, they have a lineup of people wanting to talk to them to meet them. You line up too. There's a certain thrill since this person holds a kind of magic, the magic of attraction, the magic of social currency. And then you ask someone to take a photo of you with them. Maybe you post it to social media. After all, you are with this important person. You get to increase your own social currency just by being associated with them, even for a moment. You, my friend, are basking in reflected glory. There's a flip side, though. While hanging out with someone who has high esteem can build your own esteem, the opposite is also true. 
there's an equally strong tendency to cut off reflected failure. So it's preferable to stay away from someone where, or when someone's not bringing you glory, but the opposite. Stay away or their bad juju will rub off on you. How resilient can someone be when people shy away from them as they struggle? In the aftermath of the pandemic, many people are struggling to reestablish their social networks. Many people were isolated during the pandemic and did not have family, but had to deal with things on their own. To ask or expect people to be resilient when they do not have adequate social networks is unfair and punishing. There was little to no availability during the pandemic. Many were just holding on in the profound uncertainty of the time. Can we really say someone doesn't have resilience when it wasn't their fault a mysterious illness befell the world and eliminated various avenues to social resources? Number three, specific coping strategies. Can you see how ridiculous it can be to expect someone to have coping strategies when they are missing appropriate supports in order to function? Yes, we can all learn how to regulate our emotions better and try to improve our communication with others. But to expect someone with limited resources and inadequate social supports to come up with coping strategies out of nowhere is unfair. I wholly support psychological resource. Re, sorry, psychological research. But when it does not adequately articulate the social, cultural, biological, and political structures that undermine a person's ability to access resilience, we are doing people a disservice. We are expecting them to single-handedly solve a problem that is not of their own creation. It is a construct of society and a me-first view that fails to acknowledge multiple inequities. Not everyone starts or has the same resources. Yes, society is messed up and we have to do the best we can. But resilience is not something that comes from unending reserves. It is nurtured from within and without. How can it be otherwise? Life's tests. But then life bombards us with terrible news of violence, increasing cost of things, necessities, basic needs, leaving people impatient for happiness and joy, desperate for something good after so much challenge. The happy encounters feel few and far between because we are trying to get back to enjoying ourselves after so much was taken away. We say to life, are you kidding me? I can't go on. I thought life would be better post-pandemic. I thought once I had all my favorite activities back that I could see my family and friends and fly off to exciting places and life would feel good again. But no, life continues to challenge. And many on the edge of survival are saying, now I have to be resilient. How can I be when my reserves are shot? Really? Resilience? Life is not easy. There are perks and benefits to all walks of life. Insights we have as people who have lived longer, but freshness, energy, and hope from younger people. We are all trying to live a life of meaning, of finding love, finding work, paying for life's necessities, whoever we are. But not all of us have had the same starting point. When we use the word resilience, 
I believe we need to use caution. It can trigger. It can hurt. It can imply someone is not enough if they are not managing the way they are shown resilient people manage their adversities. When you are struggling, do you have people in your life who say, okay, how can I help and encourage you to keep going? In other words, do you feel supported? Or do people say, it's good you're so resilient and leave you alone? Why does that feel so dismissive? Think about it. When we are told we have to be resilient, we, used, we lose some of the humanity that exists in actually acknowledging that someone is normal to not be resilient in the face of multiple unfortunate events. Can we just say, wow, that sucks. Sometimes when we are no longer feeling resilient, it is a hand we actually need. Here's mine. And so it ends. And now I'd like to share some of my footnotes, um, as I do at the end of an essay. So there are seven. The first footnote uh, links to American Psychological Association's website. I have the link in my written essay on my Substack publication. And if you go there, you'll see that I actually um, quoted the entire definition of resilience of which this essay is based on. But today, as I was preparing for this talk, for this podcast, I scrolled down a little further on uh, the APA's website, and I noticed that they are actually having a call for papers. I mean, the deadline's passed already, but I think this is really interesting and shows some forethought on the APA's um, perspective. And it's a call for papers, rethinking resilience and post-traumatic growth. And so when I clicked on that, um, I thought it was interesting. They're looking at uh, multidisciplinary perspectives and understanding adaptive responses to adversity. And I started reading and they're talking about looking at the catastrophic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic and the experience of adversity on numerous peoples including but not limited to health and well-being, social relationship functionality and quality, the homework dynamic and confronting social isolation from and bereavement of family and friends. They call it a generational event that coincided with other seismic responses to adversity in society, such as the Black Lives Matter and hashtag MeToo movements, as well as increased intent attention to natural disasters such as climate change. Such adverse events have short and long-term impacts, both good and bad. And so now they're looking at resilience as well as post-traumatic growth literature to see how all of these things impact people and look at the risk factors and protective factors that people have. So I, I didn't, haven't really addressed risk factors and protective factors. But risk factors are very much what I uh, spoke of earlier in the essay when I talked about you know, how someone's childhood was or how much they're in survival, how much can they pay for their basic needs. So those are risk factors that impact how well someone can adapt to, their, um, to an adverse experience. 
um, protective factors I also address, although I didn't call it that, and that's having people in your life, having people check in, having people not be dismissive, but having people who are willing to help. Um, so I, I wanted to address this because I am heartened <laughs> by the APA doing research on all those things, you know, and for me personally, um, and for this publication, Princess in the P, addressing me too as well, because many of us who are in recovery from sexual assault and rape, you know, that's part of our life experience and affects our ability to be resilient. So I'm glad that they're addressing those things as well. So that's my first footnote. Uh, the second footnote is talking about neurodivergence. So um, this is a non-medical term that describes people whose brains develop or work differently for some reason. So in my written essay on my Substack page, I do have a link to the Cleveland Clinic. And they, um, well, let's see. Let's see, because I, I don't want to go into neurodivergence because this will make this essay very long, but some examples of neurodivergence are people on the autism spectrum, so ASD um, diagnoses, as well as um, people who have ADHD. So um, being neurodivergent means that their brains don't quite work the same way as other people or people who don't have neurodivergence, and there can be a struggle in learning new materials, particularly with children, but also with adults. And so when I talked about different risk factors or different things in a person's childhood, if someone was neurodivergent and didn't get the supports they needed, that affects their ability to exhale or could affect their ability to exhale and, and have a life that feels supportive for them. So that's neurodivergence. And again, feel free to go to my, my publication and you can find the link to um, the resource there. My third um, footnote is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So um, I basically include a link to simple psychology. You can find it there, but it, they say Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a motivational theory in psychology comprising of a five-tier model of human needs, often depicted as hierarchical levels within a pyramid. So as I described in the essay, it begins with the survival needs, having basic needs met, like a place to be warm, to live, to have food and water, and then safety and, and all those things like I explained in the essay. My fourth um, footnote references a social psychology bias. Um, so bask in reflected glory. So um, I do quote from my social psychology textbook. Uh, I took this course, it was a second year course, way back, I don't know, eight years ago. Blew my mind, such a good course. Highly recommend taking social psychology. You learn a lot about the world um, with this. Um, so bask in reflective glory is basically connecting with successful others because that increases your self-esteem, right? So this is really clearly shown. And in my textbook, they talk about, you know, how people connect to um, 
their teams. So like sports teams. So if your sports team, you know, does really, really well, um, you're going to really connect and be proud because that increases your self-esteem. So the person who, um, who kind of developed this was Robert Cialdini and he had some colleagues back in the seventies and they did, um, experiments, social psychology experiments around it. So yeah, that whole idea of your self-esteem gets higher when you're associated with a very important person or a successful team or that that's Baskin reflected glory. Um, my fifth footnote refers to the idea of social currency. So that's kind of a similar idea. Um, and in this talking about the idea of getting likes or comments in social media. And so, uh, social currency is something that, you know, um, we have when we associate with people or we get a lot of, um, validation from other people. Um, the fifth, am I at the fifth? No, sixth. So again, back to social psychology. Um, so there's this abbreviation called CORF and that's cut off reflected failure. So as I said in my essay, that is the polar opposite of Baskin reflected glory. So it's like distancing oneself from failure, from, from people who are struggling. It's like ignoring that that even happens because that can really bring a person down. And then my final, um, my final footnote is really just acknowledging that what juju is, um, I don't know, I kind of hesitated before using it, but it was a word that just came, and so I hope I'm not offending anyone, but it is from the West African language, um, and it's basically believing that something has a supernatural power or charm, so it's this idea of we don't want to be near people who are failing because we don't want to associate ourselves with that. So it's just another way of saying, you know, cut off reflected failure. Or juju can also be positive, but in my case, it, I described it as kind of like a negative. So that concludes the footnotes. Um, I hope you enjoyed the audio reading of my essay and my commentary and notes. I wanted to let you know that coming soon, I will be offering comment and analysis for paid subscribers only. Paid subscriptions allow me to produce this content. I strive to have content that is well-researched and informative and um, to increase our knowledge of psychology and how we are in the world and better help support people uh, who are healing from trauma and adversity. And so having paid subscriptions helps me to do that. If you would like to learn more about my work, please visit my Substack sub publication, Princess in the P, Survivor Edition. Consider becoming a subscriber since this is reader supported. A subscription will give you access to the latest articles on healing from trauma and how to deal with life's tests delivered straight to your inbox. You'll also have full access to my archives. Your support means I can continue to research, write, and produce this work. Thank you for listening. Be well.